All right. I'm taking your word for it. All right. And uh, we've been talking about a walk. And uh, we've uh, looked at already uh, the walk of unity, a walk in truth and holiness, a walk in Christ. And so this is going to be, be an illustration of the, the walk in these aspects. Now, uh, thus far, we, if you remember, our walk in Christ is to be a working walk, a worthy walk, a wholehearted walk, a wonderful walk, a witnessing walk, and the wise walk. And I'm not going to go through all those again uh, because we've uh, talked about it and reviewed it. But uh, uh, then a couple of Sundays ago, we talked about how this walk in Christ should be a walk in love, a walk as light, and walk as wise. So here in chapter 5, the latter part, Paul continues with a picture of this walk. And he uses an inst- the institution of marriage to illustrate for us what this walk would be like. Now, if you take the average marriage in America today, you'd probably say that's not a very good illustration, is it? Uh, but uh, uh, yet the Lord Jesus has the perfect illustration for us. And the problem is too many marriages, including Christian marriages, are anything but a picture that Paul gives us here. A marriage, especially a Christian marriage, is supposed to be a thing of intense beauty, of love, and of joy. And yet, too often, this is just not the case. Sadly, many marriages, even those where both partners are believers, those marriages are often in serious turmoil. And the sad truth is that the divorce rate is the same for Christian marriages as it is for marriages where Christ is not in the picture. Now that is a real sad statistic. But when individuals are not walking right, marriages will not be right, and then churches will not be right. Now we know the story. Often this takes place. A couple is... Uh, and deeply in love uh, and where you s- see one you're going to see the other unless you're having a long distance engagement as some have uh, right but uh, and we've had some children that have had some long distance engagements too but uh, usually if they're in the same church or same community if you see one you're going to see the other uh, they do things together now, we're talking about uh, uh, this is probably before they get married, but they talk about their futures. Uh, they show their love to one another in a million little seemingly insignificant ways. And uh, they date like this for several months and sometimes even several years. And then finally they reach the point where they feel they just can't bear to be apart any longer, and they come together as husband and wife. And for a while, they are wonderfully happy. And then after the dust settles, and they get used to being together, it seems that the old flame that burned so brightly is now just a smoldering ember. She never had to open the door. Now she has to open it all the time. He never saw her unless she was looking her best. Now he sees her many times at her worst. Uh, There are surprises now that they never expected beforehand. There are issues that come up now that that finds them acting 
like warring nations instead of one flesh. And most of the married folks here tonight know what I'm talking about. When things reach this point, many couples, though, problem is that many couples throw in the towel. And they say, well, I don't love her anymore. I don't love him anymore. Uh, I'm getting tired of this. And so they begin to look for, for fulfillment in someone else, someplace else. And when things reach this stage of development, many couples find themselves in divorce court. Now, if they do not choose this route, they may even stay, decide to stay together, you know, for the children's sake. I've known couples that have done that. As long as the children are in the home, they put up with each other, and they said, we're going to get along. Once the children are gone, then say, that's it, I'm out of here. There are problems in which what should be the happiest in all human relationships. So why do things reach this point? Well, either the people involved lack the tools they need to keep their homes together, or they lack the commitment that's necessary to keep that home together, and I'm convinced that things do not have to end that way. And being realistic, what are married couples to do when wedlock turns to dreadlock? Is there hope for a marriage that seems to have gone sour? Is there any way to rekindle that old flame? Yes, but just don't look for a magic formula. Don't expect sudden breakthroughs that change everything radically and permanently. If you're going to have a marriage that is a beautiful picture, you're going to have to work at it. It'll require some effort, some humility. It's going to require a deep commitment, a commitment to the relationship, and above all, a willingness to do everything God's way. Now, there are certain guidelines clearly laid out in the Bible. Why do we have so many Christian marriages that just can't seem to get it together? It's because they're not looking at God's guidelines, God's word. They're looking at the world for their example. The world says you get tired of each other, then find someone else that you can get along with. That's not what the Bible teaches. And as we continue our study here in Ephesians this evening, we'll find help for married couples to strengthen their relationships. And it's important for others to see us who are married living like we are one flesh rather than at odds with one another. And I want the young people of our church tonight uh, to realize that one day they'll be married themselves, no doubt. And I want them to know it does not have to be a struggle. Now, it does take work, but it has, doesn't have to be a struggle. God wants each one of us to know this evening that there is hope for the home, and this hope will be found in applying God's principles for living. And when we do, we turn our marriages into a beautiful illustration. The portion of Scripture is beneficial for us in a couple ways. First of all, to give us truth about the relationship between Christ and the body of Christ, the local church, and secondly, 
to give us truth about the way we should be living in our marriages and in our homes. And it's this aspect of truth about marriage that we'll really concentrate on. So let's look, first of all, at God's plan for the Christian home. Look at verse 23. It says in verse 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. The first requirement for a godly Christian home is that the husband and the wife both be brought together under the headship of Christ. And before there can ever be unity, and that's what we're talking about here, all the way from back to chapter 4, before there can be unity as a couple, there must be a growing relationship with, a Christ, with Christ as an individual. And the primary step in rekindling the old flame, so to speak, is strengthening our fellowship with God. And there are four main areas that we want to look at that need our attention this evening. First of all, you need to be certain of your salvation. It's absolutely imperative that both partners in the marriage covenant be believers. An unequal yoke produces a relationship that is totally out of balance. Without the presence of Christ dwelling in both hearts, the marriage is doomed for trouble from the very start. Now, in the home where both spouses are saved and striving to serve the Lord, the Holy Spirit indwells them both. The Holy Spirit is able to equip them to handle their problems. If you think, uh, young people, that uh, you're going to get married and there's not going to be any problems, what was that outline we gave? I should ask Isaac. Get a life, get a wife, and get strife. It's going to be there, okay? It's going to be there. And if we think everything's going to be just smooth sailing, then uh, we don't realize who we are. We're sinners, saved by grace. And we need to realize there are some going to be some difficult times. And it's the indwelling Spirit of God that's going to be able to help us to handle the problems, help us to love each other uh, uh, through those problems. Now, there are some rare occasions where a believer and a non-believer had a good marriage. And you could probably say, you know, Pastor, I know of this one couple. They, one was uh, saved and the other wasn't. And they had a good marriage. But that's the exception and it's not the rule. And more often than not, the unbeliever will eventually drag the believer down to their standard of living. Uh, don't have the attitude, well, I'm going to change them. Oh, well, that's not even a attitude that any of us should have. I'm going to change them. No, you're not going to change anybody. First, if you really love someone, you wouldn't want to change them. Second, God, not you, is in control of the changing. 
God can do the changing. God is in control of salvation. So be certain of your salvation. Secondly, be clean from all sin. Sin should be confessed as far as it is known. Proverbs 28:13 says, "He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy." You need to be sure that all sin has been dealt with before the Savior and where necessary before your spouse. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. James chapter 5 and verse 16 says, Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So be clean from all sin. And then thirdly, be committed to your Savior. Now this is talking about every area of your life. Jesus needs to possess complete control. Uh, In your worship life, and that's what we'll look at here, and we've already looked at in verses 19 through 21. Um. In your work life, in Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll get to Ephesians 6 and verses 5 through 9, uh, it talks about servants being obedient to them that are your masters and so forth. Uh, uh, Your work life needs to be right. Jesus needs to be in control of that. Uh, In your war life. Now, what am I talking about? Your war life. Well, that's what Ephesians Chapter 6, verses 10 through 18 talks about being uh, uh, having the whole armor of God and standing against the wiles of the devil. That's your war life. Jesus needs to be in complete control. And then, of course, in your wedded, wedded life. And that's what we're looking at here in verses 22 through 33. And so this requires that command of Ephesians 5 and verse 18. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. That needs to be carried out in the lives of both husband and wife. If we expect to be all that God wants us to be, both in and out of the home, then we must be walking under the power of the Spirit, and we must be Spirit-filled, or it will show in all of these areas. So be committed to your Savior, and then fourthly, be committed to your spouse. In verse 31 of chapter 5, Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Now that is kind of a repeat mandate that was spoken of back in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. In Genesis 2.24, it says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And so here's a kind of a commentary on Genesis 2.24 and vice versa. All marriages stand a better chance for survival when there is a measure of independence from one's parents and in-laws. Amen?
Now, you find here that it refers to a physical, emotional, financial independence. That covers the leaving. But there also must be a great amount of cleaving. And simply put, your marriage will never work until you get to the place where you're totally committed to your spouse. In other words, you must come to the place where your love for him or her surpasses your love for anyone on this earth. Except for the Lord Jesus Christ. And this would include one's birth family, one's friends, one's money, one's hobbies, anything. No Christian home will be successful without an ever-deepening relationship with God on part of both spouses. And I say both because there will, always, uh, there will also be problems when one is seeking the Lord and the other one's maybe at a standstill in their Christian walk. There will be a different set of family goals, different set of priorities when Jesus isn't the focus of both lives. It all rises and falls on your relationship with God. So that's God's plan for the Christian home. Secondly, God's plan for the Christian husband. We see this in verses 23 through 29. Now we've read verses 23 through 25. It goes on to say in verse 26 that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the, the word, that he might present himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but it shall be a holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself, for no man ever yet hateth his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. <clears throat> now, men, listen, this passage contains a very, very important truth. The husband's vital role in the, pic- in the marriage is a picture of Jesus Christ. Well, that's, a, that's an awesome responsibility we have, men. How's that for responsibility? To the wife, the children, and others around him, the husband is a picture of the character and the attributes of the Savior. Again, that puts a lot of weight upon our shoulders, doesn't it? It's no wonder that he must be filled with the Holy Spirit. We can't do this in our own flesh. We must have the filling of the Spirit, the control of the Holy Spirit of God. Let me give you an example of what often happens in a Christian home. Uh, The husband, and we'll call him Marvin. I don't think we have any Marvins here tonight, so we can call him Marvin. He's faithful to attend prayer meetings. He always prayed for the pastor in the meetings and for the needs of the church. His language seemed to change, though, whenever he was in a church setting, such as the regular services of his church or the home prayer meeting that he attended. He was frequently heard exclaiming, Praise the Lord! And he would use many other spiritual terms. He was also willing to Uh, even eager to perform his share of tasks in the church's many ministries. But at home, Marvin was different. He seemed unwilling to take the responsibility of leadership. 
He was not very much interested in his job either. While eager to assume spiritual responsibilities with his peers at church, he seemed to think at home as a different kind of environment altogether. It was almost as if he did not think the home was, a, was to be spiritual in focus. Somehow he had not come to realize that he was the spiritual priest of his family and that the role of father and husband required as much spiritual power as his church duties. Marvin wouldn't have prayer and Bible study with his family. He wouldn't have devotions. It's an important part of having a godly family is to read the Bible together, to pray together. And then to continue doing that even after the children leave. Now I want you to notice some characteristics that a Christian husband and father should have. First of all, he must be a leader. That's what verse 23 is talking about here. The husband is the head. The husband is the head of the wife. The man is responsible for the spiritual climate in his home. He's responsible before the Lord for leading his spouse and his family into deeper relationship with the Lord. The husband will give an account before the Lord concerning his leadership within the home. He must be a leader. Secondly, he must be a lover. Verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. That verse says that the husband is to love the wife. I don't accept a man coming to me and say, I don't love her anymore. We're going to call it quits. Well, there's a disobedient man if he claims to be a Christian. Because the Bible is very clear. Husbands, love your wife. Yeah, but you don't know what I have to live with. Husbands, love your wives. The word here is the word agapeo, which is... Uh, where we often use the word agape, love, speaks of the kind of love that Jesus demonstrated when he died for sinners. His love is selfless, it's sacrificial, it's steadfast, and all the characteristics of Christ's love for the lost are to be seen in the husband's love for his wife. When a man loves his wife after this manner, she will respond by willingly submitting to his leadership within the home. Now, the, the Bible envisions a role of sacrificial love for the husband. It, he is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Nothing less is required than the kind of love that Christ had for the church. It's certainly not the kind of love which, where a man would uh, want anyone to cater to his whims. It's not a passive love. And just as Christ did not stay in heaven, but he came to respond to our need, even so the husband is to discern the needs of the wife and seek to meet those needs. He is to sacrifice time and pleasure and his own goals, and even, if necessary, in order to, to fulfill his role as a husband. He must be a leader. He must be a lover. Thirdly, he must be a laborer. Now, these verses explain that the work 
which man is called upon to put into his marriage relationship. First of all, he must be a protector. That's what verse 23 is talking about. Most women have a deep-seated need to feel safe and be protected. The wise husband will create an atmosphere of safety in his home. He'll live and love his spouse in such a way to show her that he can be trusted to take care of every need that she has. She needs to know that she can trust in his protective care of her life. And then he should also be proactive. That's what verse 25 is saying. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. That's proactive. Seems that many times both spouses sit back in a relationship and they wait for the other one to make the first move about reconciliation. You know, something comes between them and... uh, They just kind of sit there and wait for each other to uh, make the first move. Well, I'm not going to make the first move. It's her fault. I'm not going to make the move. It's his fault. And so they wait on each other and nothing happens. They might even go to bed angry. What's the Bible say about that? Let not the sun go down on your your wrath, okay? That doesn't help a, a marriage. The Bible teaches us, really, that men, the first move is yours. Even if she is wrong. Most likely, you were wrong, but uh, the first move belongs to you. It would seem that these verses are requiring more of men than of women. With leadership, there comes a greater measure of responsibility. And so... He should be a protector. He should be proactive. Thirdly, he should be precise. A wise husband realizes that meeting the needs of his spouse will prove beneficial to himself and will make his life even happier. Most men want their homes to be havens of rest and peace and and quiet. And this will become more a reality when a husband learns to take the necessary steps to meet the needs of his wife. Verse 28 says, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. And then fourthly, he should be a provider. Verse 29. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. And he's to nourish and cherish his wife. Just as a man uh, looks out for the needs of his own body, He gets food. He gets rest. He needs to realize that the wife is part of his flesh and he makes whatever provisions are necessary to see her needs are met. And we've said there already, he is to nourish. That literally means to bring to maturity. A godly husband will help his wife reach her fullest potential in God. Uh, He helps her to grow by meeting her needs and being an encouragement to her life problem is many times the wife is more spiritual than the husband because he's lacking in leadership here he's not being the provider but he is to nourish he is to cherish literally to soften with heat is the word there 
The husband is to give tender love to his spouse. This is a primary want and need of most women. They just want to feel loved and they crave special attention. Often this is hard for us as men to grasp. It's also hard for most men to come to the place where they can provide these things on a consistent basis. Well, I bought her flowers last year. Why do I have to do it again this year? Besides that, the flowers just so wilt. You know, in two or three days, you throw them away. You can tell what kind of a flower buyer I am, huh? But I'm convinced that if men would learn to treat their wives like special creatures that they are, it would be a result in a far more harmonious home life for everyone. <clears throat> and my wife's over there, and under her breath, she, I can hear it. Amen. Amen. Number three, God's plan for the Christian home, God's plan for the Christian husband, God's plan for the Christian helpmeet. I use the word helpmeet there because it starts with H, right? Paul gives three words to the Christian wife that should go along a long way toward producing the desired results in the home. First of all, it's a word about rank. When you look at verse uh, twenty. Two, it says, wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands as unto the Lord. The word submit really is a military term. It means to arrange in military fashion, to maintain one's rank. It also means a voluntary attitude of cooperation. When a woman submits to her husband, it need, she needs to realize that she's simply honoring God. It says here, submit yourselves unto your husbands as unto the Lord. God did not give this command to dehumanize the woman or to make her into a slave. God gave this command so that his order might be maintained in the home. See, Christianity is given women more freedom than they've known for 4,000 years. And up until now, into recent years, women have been seen as property, disposable at the husband's whim. And when this freedom came, the desire to dominate the home also developed. Now, when God spoke to Eve in Genesis 3 and verse 16, it tells us there that the woman was to be ranked under the man and that she might possess a desire to take uh, she might possess a desire to take over the headship and so Paul reminds the woman to maintain the rank now most worldly women today don't like that but i'm just giving you what the bible says so there's a word about rank there's a word about respect The idea of submission speaks more of respecting one's husband than it does of becoming his servant. Uh, Women could learn a valuable lesson here. While women thrive on attention, time, and affection, a man loves nothing more than having his ego stroked. Man, you're strong. Man, you're looking good today. 
When a woman makes his, uh, a man feel that he's absolutely essential for his existence, she has made him feel respected and even important. And when he does get it right, occasionally a man does get it right, she makes a big deal about it. Men like to appear tough, but actually they're just little boys who need reassurance all the time, ladies. I read about one particular pastor who lost his wife to cancer. And at her funeral, this pastor described some of the ways that she made him a better man. And as a struggling young preacher, he said he had trouble earning a living. He told of how he would come home one night and he found the house completely dark. When he opened the door, he saw his wife had prepared a candlelight dinner for two. He thought, well, that's a great idea. And he went into the bathroom to wash his hands and to freshen up. And he tried unsuccessfully, though, to turn on the light. And then he felt his way around the uh, bedroom and flipped on another switch and that no light came on there either. Darkness prevailed. Well, the young pastor went back to the dining room and asked his wife why the electricity was off, and she began to cry. She said, you work so hard, and we're really trying, but it's pretty rough. I didn't have enough money to pay the light bill, and I didn't want you to know about it, so I just thought we would eat by candlelight. Well, the pastor described his wife's words with very intense emotion, and he said she could have said, I've never been in this situation before. I was reared in a home of a wealthy doctor, and we never had our lights turned off. She could have broken my spirit. She could have ruined me. She could have demoralized me. But instead, she said, you know, somehow or other, we'll get those lights back on, but let's eat by candlelight tonight. Pastor continued, and he said, she was my protector Uh, This pastor was from a large city and was involved in some political situation. He said there again, as he went on at the funeral, he said, Years ago, I received quite a few death threats. And one night, I received notice that I would be killed the next day. I woke up thankful to be alive, but I noticed that she was gone. I looked out the window, and my car was gone. I went outside and finally saw her driving up, and he said, where have you been? She said, well, well, it occurred to me that they could have put a bomb in that car last night, and if you'd gotten in there, you would have been blown away. So I got up and drove it away, and it's all right. That's an example of a wife that treated her husband with respect treat your husbands with respect ladies and men treat your wives with respect as well and then we have a word about realization in maintaining her rank under the husband the woman needs to realize certain truths the first truth is that it honors God It may make it easier to submit to your husband, especially if he's less than you think he ought to be, if you do it as unto the Lord. 
while your husband is walking in God's will and you submit to his leadership in the home, it is in fact submission to God. It honors God. Secondly, the husband will answer for the home. At the judgment seat of Christ, the husband, not the wife, will answer for his leadership in the home. If there is no submission, however, the wife will answer for her rebellion to the will of God. Thirdly, there's submission that cannot be forced. You see, submission is an act of the will. It's something one chooses to do. You will either walk in obedience to the clear teachings of the scripture or you will live in rebellion to the will of God. Genuine submission begins in the heart and works its way out through into the body. It's possible to be outwardly submissive and inwardly rebellious. And I remind you that God looks into the heart. And then fourthly, God's laws always supersedes that of your husband's. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 3.18, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. You see, God never expects a woman to go against the clear teachings of God's word. Of course, a godly husband will never ask his wife to do anything that contradicts the Bible. So what if the husband is lost? What if they got married, they were both unbelievers, and the wife gets saved, but her husband is still lost? The wife is still to submit, but she always has a higher allegiance to the Lord. God's will is always most important. And more often than not, problems in the home do not lie with the wife, but with the performance of the husband. Now, you men will probably disagree with that statement, but I'll stand by it because I believe it's true. I believe that's what God's word is telling us. That's why God is giving us these instructions in the way he's given them. And so has wedlock turned to dreadlock in your home? If so, the word of God has just told us how to fix it. The strength to fix it comes from the time you spend on your knees before God And we need to begin the repairing process by coming before him and asking him to strengthen our marriages. And I would encourage young people here tonight who are not married yet. By the way, we've got two daughters who are still not married. But uh, I don't know what the Lord has for them. I don't know what the Lord has for you. But take these truths that have been given to you tonight from Ephesians chapter 5 and begin to say, I'm going to put those to practice in my life. And as we do, I believe that we will see changes come in the homes and present marriages and marriages that come in the future from young people will be started on the right foot. And we trust will continue on the right foot as well. Marriage is a wonderful illustration of how we are to walk in unity. I wonder, is our, do our marriages illustrate unity 
tonight. Unity on the individual level, our heart molded in with God's heart, unity in our marriages. One saw it illustrated in a sense where you have the husband, you have the wife, and as they get closer to God, they get closer to one another. And that's what needs to happen in marriages. And then as it happens in the individual, happens in our marriages, happens in our families, it'll happen in this church. There needs to be a unity because that's the illustration that God has given to us here in Ephesians chapter 5. Compares it, a marriage, to the relationship of Christ as the head of our church. And so I trust that'll be our desire to fulfill that in the way that he's given it to us tonight. Let's pray.